Tonight's reading is taken from uh, the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, verse 12 through to 5, uh, verse 10. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Every high priest is selected from among men and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins, as well as for the sins of the people. No one takes this honor upon himself. He must be called by God, just as Aaron was. So, Christ also did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest. But God said to him, You are my son, Today I have become your father. And, he says, in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son he learned obedience from what he suffered. And, once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. This is God's word. Let's pray as we begin. Our great God and Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that you give us your words and thank you for what we've already read of it this evening, for it is living and active. It exposes us. And Father, we need that. We need to be exposed to words of rebuke, some of us, but also we need our hearts exposed so we hear rightly your words of comfort and encouragement to us. So thank you for this precious gift. And will you speak it again, fresh to us this evening, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Now, if you are joining us this evening, chapter 4 and uh, verse 14, which is where we pick up from last time, is a pretty good place to start. It's a good summary of the book of Hebrews. Come with boldness. Come with confidence to the throne of grace. Come with confidence before the living God. That's a pretty good summary of the whole book. Chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. Uh, It gets repeated a little later on in chapter 10. But I don't know if that's true of you. I don't know how you do come before the living God. If it is with confidence, you come and say, Lord, here I am, and you're delighted to see me. Or if you come guiltily, rarely, reluctantly. The book of Hebrews would call us to come with confidence because you belong if you've trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. Confidently. Do you remember this photo? It's a very famous photo of uh, John F. Kennedy Jr. under his daddy's desk. Uh, it was famous and added poignancy because it was only published uh, about five days after he was, his dad was assassinated. Um, so there's some poignancy there, sort of the myth of Camelot, of the young JFK running the, um, uh, running the country with his kids playing around. But of course it's a very sweet photo and memorable for other reasons. Because there is JFK Jr. playing at his daddy's feet access in a way that most people in the world haven't got a hope of getting anywhere near there. It doesn't occur to the, whatever he was then, five-year-old boy, it doesn't occur to him that he shouldn't go in to the president's office, that he should let this most important man get about his work. No, he just plays with his daddy's feet, probably nicks a pen. Where's my pen to sign this document? And his son's nicked it. It's not even there. Because he comes as a son, as a child, he belongs. He's, he doesn't even think about it, really. He just comes with confidence, certain of his father's love for him. And Hebrews just say, come with confidence. Come with confidence. As I say, if you're joining, it's not a bad week to jump in. This little section, chapter 4, verse 14 to 16, bookends the central section of, uh, of Hebrews. So chapter 10, 19 to 25 is almost identical passage, same concept, same words. And in the center of these two chapters, uh, really chapters 5 to the end of 10, you get the central exposition of who Jesus is, what he's done, the fact that he's gone through the heavens for you and for me. And we'll get to all that detail later on. But it introduces really the theme here that Jesus is a high priest. Now, we don't have many of those today. In, apart from sort of pop culture, you might have a high priest of fashion or a high priest of baking, or, uh, uh, or such things. But in this sense, a biblical sense, we don't really have them very much today. It's an Old Testament concept. The high priest was the one who mediated between a perfect or mighty God and a sinful people. And the high priest was the only one who really could bring them together. We'll get to it all in detail, but once a, day, once a year, one day, the high priest reconciled these people and their perfect God. Now, Jesus here is defined as the great high priest. Uh, right at the bottom of these uh, sheets, there's an outline on the back. At the bottom, there's uh, how I think chapter 5 works. It's a bit of a sandwich structure. I wondered if that was a little bit complicated, so I want to try and keep it more simple than that. So three things about this high priest, okay? He's a necessary high priest. He's a sympathetic high priest. He's an obedient high priest. And there are some applications that flow from that. 
Because the writer wants to persuade us, come boldly. Come boldly. And as Matt said at the beginning, I don't think truth gets much better than this, than these verses. First then, uh, Jesus is a necessary high priest, a necessary high priest. Let's pick it up. Last time we uh, looked at uh, uh, chapter 4 and finished at verse 13. It's talking about the word of God. And um, so let's pick it up just from verse 13. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Therefore, since we have a great high priest, let us hold firmly to the one we hope we profess. Logic is this. The word of God exposes us. And we said last time, that can be done now in a way which benefits us. Or it will be done then, on the day when we stand before the living God and exposes us and judges us. An exposure that only happens the day we die. Now, because the Bible is clear that all of us will one day have to give an account of how we've lived before God, that's why we need Jesus as a high priest. It's the logic here. And so even just as we begin, we'll only recognize, we'll only come before him with boldness, confidence. We'll only recognize Jesus Christ as necessary for us if we understand that one day you, me, all of us will stand in God's dock and give an account. And everything we've said, everything we've done will be exposed and laid out in the courtroom. That's why we need Jesus as high priest. But you've got to get that clear in your head. If you don't have that clear, you probably won't come with boldness. So if you just have the improvement sort of Jesus, Jesus makes your life a little bit better. You won't really come with boldness. You know, Jesus is essentially the equivalent to uh, a week's winter sun in the Canary Islands. Oh, that's nice. Particularly when it's been torrential rain all day. That's nice. Lovely. But it won't actually make or break your life. It'd be nice to have that to look forward to in January or December even, wouldn't it? But if it doesn't happen, well, life goes on. Now, if Jesus is just a bit like that, he's an improvement. He makes your life a little bit better, but basically you're a pretty good bloke or woman as it is. But then you're never going to run to him boldly, cling to him. You're never going to do that if he's just an improvement. Or even worse, perhaps, more prosaically, you, you might think that there might be a God, and if there's a God... I best have Jesus on my CV just to be safe. And so Jesus is a bit of an insurance for you and nothing more. And no one loves insurance. Forgive me if that's your industry, but no one loves you. (laughs) Your work. No one loves your work. Right up until the moment when something goes wrong. I mean, no one gets excited about whatever time of year it is, paying their car insurance and sending that off. But if you have a crash, you're very pleased you did but you don't get excited. And if that's how you treat Jesus, well, there might be a God, so I best follow him just in case. Because maybe I'll be grateful one day. But you don't get excited about car insurance. you just got to do it. Well, there's no pleasure then. You won't come boldly. But if you know that you've failed, 
before God. If you know the whole of your life will be exposed before him. And if you know that you'll face a judgment for pushing God out and rejecting him of your life, then you'll want this man as your high priest. You'll want Jesus Christ. You know the only way to be saved is through him. Then you run to him. You run to him if you know you're in trouble. Uh, one or two may have heard me tell this before. Um, it is very good, so hear it again. The, um, uh, I remember I was like a 12-year-old boy on holiday with my parents, just me and my mum and dad. My sister had obviously found something much better to do. And uh, I was 12 and just not thrilled with going on holiday with mum and dad. I was at that sort of pre-teenager, but I was precocious even then. And, um, and so it was a bit moody about this. It was a caravan holiday in Dorset, I remember, and the weather was bad. Nothing was going very well. No TV. My world had ended. Um, but I remember one day going for a walk, and uh, I was walking probably about 10, 20 meters ahead of my parents just to demonstrate I was far too cool to walk with them. Uh, and so I was walking out in front, and we walked across uh, a farmer's field, and off in the corner was Flossie the sheep doing her thing, super. Um, and I started crossing this field, and then the sheep started, you know, trotting a little bit, walking towards me, running towards me, charging towards me. <laughs> And Flossie had some very male-looking horns. And he was angry that I'd entered his field. Now, the truth is, actually, at age 12, he was a fairly big ram charging me with substantial horns. And I just froze. I simply froze. And this thing would have hit me and, no doubt, given me a pretty severe beating. Uh, I don't know what he was grumpy about. But just, just before the moment of impact, my dad jumped in with his massive branch and <laughs> smacked this thing right in. Now, you wouldn't know from looking at me, but my dad is a powerful man. He is, you know, he, and when he's angry, he kind of is the Hulk. Um, he's a powerful man. This massive branch gave this thing. Now, that didn't calm the rhyme down. <laughs> In fact, he seemed to get even a little bit more agitated at that point. By this point, I was quite pleased to associate with my father. And really hid behind him. He was screaming at my mum, get over the stile, get over the stile. And he had this branch. He was trying to fend off the ram. And every time the ram, it was like a jousting thing, but every time the ram hit him, some of the branch got smashed away. Some of the branch got smashed away. Some of it got smashed away. Mum, get over. He said to me, get over the stile, idiot. And um, so I sort of sprinted and got over the stile, and this thing smashed. He had one last thing, belted this thing as hard as he could into the ram's face, and then sprinted, jumped over the wall, and escaped just with the, well, without his trousers, but with the rest of him pretty much intact. Now, it goes down in our family. It's quite a funny story, really. Because the reality was at the time... I went from a very moody 12-year-old to one who was desperate to cling to my father. And what was the difference? I was exposed to danger. I was exposed. I suppose I would have died, but I got smashed ribs, got a bit of a mauling. And look, only if you realize that one day you'll stand before the living God exposed, uncovered, you have to give an account 
for everything you've said, done, thought wrong in your life. Only if you know that does Jesus go from being nice, useful, possible, a desperate need for you, a necessary high priest. So chapter 4, verse 13 will be exposed. 14, therefore, we have a necessary high priest. Secondly, let's move on into the, uh, the guts of the passage. So he's a necessary high priest. Second thing, he's a sympathetic high priest. Verse, 15, uh, verse 14, let's pick it up from there. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who's gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Now, that's the next five chapters. Wow, Jesus Christ, he's gone into heaven for you and for me. Verse 15, he's not distant. That's what he wants to make clear. Don't think that just because he's gone through the heavens, this one is remote. So double negative, verse 15. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He sympathizes. It's a very sweet word in in the Greek. It's used for a, a mother's care for their child. Not just empathy, going through a rough time. Yeah, I've been through a rough time. Not just that, but a mother who hears a distressed baby crying and does what? Doesn't go, having a rough time. Yeah, I remember being three months old. It's tough, isn't it? No, the mum goes and helps. It's a sympathy that acts, that has action behind it. Same word is used in chapter 10 of Christians who go to visit their brothers in prison. They sympathize by going and providing practical care for them. Jesus' sympathy is an active one. He sympathizes. Now the focus here, we'll see as the chapter goes on, it's going to fall particularly on him addressing the temptation to give up because of suffering. That's the particular emphasis here because that's the issue for his audience but the word weaknesses, when it says it sympathizes with our weaknesses, it's a very broad word, can mean physical weaknesses. He gets that. Emotional weaknesses, he gets that. As well as temptation, he gets that. But that's what gets emphasized here. Temptation, that's the positive of verse four, uh, Excuse me, 15. Positively, we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Now that's a strong sentence. <laughs> Tempted in every way. Like I think probably you'd say it's slightly over-translated. Jesus was tempted in the likeness of sin like us, might be better. Or he was tempted in every arena of life like we were. Of course elsewhere, it's not that Jesus is tempted by a sinful nature like you and me would be. He didn't have one. But he did face external temptation beyond anything you or I will ever face. Of course, Jesus had Satan, the devil, personal malevolent force the Bible speaks of, addressing him personally. If you're the son of God, throw yourself off this temple, uh, excuse me, throw yourself off this mountain, and um, angels will catch you. If you're the son of God, you're starving, make yourself some food from this bread. Excuse me, some bread from these stones. You and I are never going to have that level of external temptation upon us. Extraordinary what he had to face. 
And I think even in the more sort of mundane areas, you'd say that, that Jesus has had to face a, a degree of temptation beyond that we, what we do. Because you or I, we're tempted to, whatever it is, get angry. We resist, we resist, we resist, we give in. He never gave in. You're facing much more temptation if you never give in. You know, there's a meeting at work or at college of some kind, some sort of meeting, and a guy comes in, he's hungry, he's had to miss breakfast for some reason, it's three in the afternoon, he's not eaten all day, and but he's on a diet. But there in the middle of the table is a big cream cake. And uh, for five minutes he says, I mustn't eat the cake, it's bad for me. I mustn't eat the cake, it's bad for me. And then after five minutes he says, oh, stuff it, I'm hungry. And uh, it's a massive slap. Someone else, uh, his wife, I don't know, he's in the same meeting with him, also has missed breakfast and missed lunch, is also on a diet, and says, I mustn't eat that cake, mustn't eat that cake, and resists for an hour. She has experienced greater temptation. She's gone on longer. Because she's resisted for longer. So Jesus would know temptation. How wonderful to know that our God... That God in Jesus Christ is not distant from weakness, but took to himself a frail humanity. He doesn't just observe suffering from outside. He came into this world and experienced it from within. He's not kept himself safe at a distance, but he's come and given his life to sympathize with those who are in need. He knows our temptations and he knows our weaknesses. And I don't know what your life is like at the moment, but that matters, doesn't it? So I don't know if you, you know, you could be feeling rejected, ignored, despised. So was he. So was he by those he'd made. You could, I know, recently have experienced some colossal loss materially, financially. Yes, so did he. When he left the glory of heaven to come down to this earth. You may well be feeling a fairly intense social pressure to conform, to fit in with those people around you. Well, so did he. The Pharisees berating him, criticizing him. He could just fit in with the culture at the time. The crowds wanting him to be the great military leader. He could have just conformed. He'd be feeling lonely. Yeah, so did he. Gethsemane, will you sit and pray with me? No, they fall asleep. You may just be feeling physically exhausted. Well, so did he. You know that, don't you? As he stumbled under the weight of carrying the cross, he knows these things. He knows your weaknesses. He sympathizes with your weaknesses, not just that he understands them. But as we see in a moment, he's died to take us through them and beyond. He knows. Look, for myself, I've had a horrible week, to be honest with you. Rubbish week. There'd be many loud cries and tears in our family this week. But Jesus knows. He's experienced that. That really matters. That our God is that sort of God. 
He's a sympathetic high priest. Tempted to avoid suffering, yet, verse 15, without sin. So let's look at that last, the third. Uh, he's a necessary high priest, a sympathetic high priest. He's an obedient high priest. That point, that uh, end of verse 15, he's tempted in every way, yet without sin. That gets expounded on in chapter 5, if you're not there. Just do flick over verses 7 to 9. Amplifies upon his obedience and his sinlessness. So verse 7, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death was heard because of his reverent submission. I take it loud cries and tears, most probably a reference to Gethsemane, the garden where he cries out. Look, just because he was perfect, never think it was easy for Jesus. As he obeyed his father out of his humanity, it's not easy. He cried and shouted with tears. And verse 8 Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. Now, what do you make of that? Don't make a mistake. It's not that Jesus was ever disobedient and got better. Well done. Have an apple. You've behaved much better today than yesterday. It's not that he learned obedience from disobedience. It's not that he didn't know what it was before, but after a while he says, Oh, I get it. Obedience is doing what you're told. I didn't get it before, and now I get it. It's not that he learned in that sense, but that he learned obedience from what he suffered. That is, as Jesus lived his life, and particularly his ministry the last three years or so, there were increasingly difficult divine commands given to him, which meant increasing opposition, hostility to him. And so as he obeyed his father in those last few years of his life, he encountered expanding hostility, plans to kill him. So at each step along the way, his obedience is becoming harder and harder. You might say climaxing in the Garden of Gethsemane when he says, is there no other way? I don't want to bear the wrath of God. But I will. I will. He learned obedience in that sense. So again, for Jesus, obedience is not effortless. It's not automatic. It was a struggle. Isn't that encouraging? It was a struggle and a battle and an effort for him to obey, even when you and I did not. He learned obedience. And verse 9, once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Uh, excuse me, yeah, once made perfect, he became the source. Made perfect is the other sort of main verb going on here. Again, not that he was ever imperfect, but he's made perfect for his role of high priest. Um, being son of God was not enough to make him a savior. Do you see that? That's not enough, according to verse 9. More than that, he had to experience as a human what obedience to his father looked like in order to be a suitable savior for us. He had to live an obedient life in order to qualify as a high priest. So 
It's not that God became a man just to experience what life was like as a human. Oh, I've made these human beings. What's it like? I don't quite know. Let's have a go. And woo, you know, be like the Queen saying, what is it like being a pleb in the United Kingdom? I'll go and work in McDonald's. That was odd. Anyway, I've done it now and now I understand. It's not that he does it for some sort of experiential kick. God becomes a man in Jesus Christ in order to learn obedience, in order to become the obedient human being who then when he dies upon a cross, he can take our sin and we can receive his perfect life of obedience as he swaps places with people like you and me. Do you see that? It's not enough just for him to be the son of God, to be our high priest, our substitute. He had to be an obedient human being. So he is the one who is perfectly qualified. Or to put it in one sense, simple terms, more more realistic terms, tonight, Tomorrow, next week, you bog it in a way that you're really conscious of. You muck up. You're conscious of failing to obey the Lord in some way. That's a great time just to take a step back and say, I've just blown my temper and got really angry with someone. I was tempted to anger. I gave in to that anger. I'm sorry. But Lord Jesus, I'm so grateful you never did. You never did. You were tempted, but you obeyed and lived perfectly. Well, it may not be anger, it could be lust, it could be covetousness, whatever it is. You just stop. I've bogged it. But Lord Jesus, you never did. You were the perfectly obedient one. Wonderful. He's a necessary high priest, a sympathetic high priest an obedient high priest, and therefore the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. So two things flow from that, it seems. Uh, The two uh, great commands that we get at the beginning of uh, the whole section. First, uh, hold firm like him. Chapter 4, verse 14. Hold firm to the faith like him. That is the life of faith. It is a struggle to hold on. You do know that, don't you? If you're a Christian, you're not. It's a struggle. It's hard work to obey. It's hard work to hold on. It was hard work for Jesus. Wonderfully, he did it. Perfectly. But if the life of faith was a struggle for the Son of God, why do you think it would be easy for you? You're more powerful than him? More godly than him? I'd suggest not. If faith was a battle that he was tempted to give into, it's going to be a struggle for you and for me. It's got to be realistic on that. And the writer would say, hold on like him. Jesus was the son of God. He still learned through suffering. You've got to expect the same. You and I will learn through suffering in this world. Just hold on. Hold on like him. But secondly, and once it's more dominant, come boldly. Chapter 4, verse 16, and we read it again. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Mercy, I take it, for the sins that we've committed in the past. Grace, I take it, for the struggles that we're facing here and now. We'll find that 
at the throne of Jesus Christ. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong, a perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. Wonderful. Wonderful. Come boldly before him. Boldly, not because you deserve it, not because it's natural like JFK Jr., not because you have any right to, but because of Jesus. Because of him. Because Jesus has obeyed in your place and given you access to his throne. Boldly. Now some won't do that. Why do you not? Well, some won't come boldly. They don't think they need it. you just got to work out. You've got to be clear in your head. You've got worse than a ram charging at you. Your life will be exposed before the living God and his judgment. Come to the throne. Some don't come boldly. Some come nonchalantly. What's up, God? Here I am, back again. How are you? Had a good week? Mine's been cool. Like it? Why would you come nonchalantly before the throne? Again, it's not nonchalance that's being commended here. It's, I don't deserve it but I'm clinging to Jesus Christ boldly. Come boldly. Some won't come because they're guilty. I had a conversation with a chap this week. Uh, went a little bit like this. You haven't been around for a while? No, I haven't been at church. Any reason for that? Yeah. Yeah, life hasn't got life. I haven't, you know. Oh, look, I've been screwing up in this area. Well, why does that stop you coming to church? Because if I come to church, I've got to deal with it. I don't want to deal with it. I quite like this area. I know God doesn't like it, but I quite like it. If I come to church, I'll hear the Bible taught, and I'll think I've got to change. I don't quite want to change. Guilty. Some won't come because they're guilty. Some won't come because they're crushed by guilt. I've messed up, and God won't accept me now. And again, here the word of God, come boldly, boldly to the throne of grace. There's mercy for past mistakes. There's grace to keep you today. Come boldly. You have a great high priest. His name is love. He obeyed when you failed. Come boldly to him. Let's pray together. Great God and Father, as we thought again this evening, you know our hearts better than we know them. They are exposed before you. We cannot hide where we're at. But Father, please, would your word continue to be at work amongst us this evening and into the week. So whether our attitude of heart is that we come before you with nonchalance, we refuse to come, we don't think we need to, we're uncertain if we come, if we can come because we feel downcast, overwhelmed by our guilt. Whatever it is, would we recognize our need of the Lord Jesus Christ? Delight in the one who is sympathetic with our weaknesses. He understands our temptations and yet obeyed perfectly. So therefore, would we come to him with boldness, with confidence, knowing there is one who understands 
and knowing one that there is, there is one who has conquered temptation for us in his perfect life of obedience and then death. We praise you for him. Would we leave him more thrilled to come before his throne? We ask in his great name. Amen.